Today we're in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Now, last week where we left off, the scribes, like all the other people that were in the audience, in the crowd, they were amazed. They were amazed at what they had heard and what they saw. They were amazed that Jesus not only established that he had the authority to forgive sin, but that he said to the man, take up your bed, rise, take up your bed and walk, and he did it. He rose, he took up his bed and walked. You know, words are fine, but words with action are powerful. And uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just words. It is not mere words. Oh, they are words. They are beautiful, glorious words. But they are so much more than that. They are what empowers us to live, to walk, uh, to love, uh, to be able to be in relationship with God. And so the scribes, like everyone else, was amazed. But there is a difference between amazement and believing. There's a difference between awe and wonder and being willing to put your life behind the teaching that Jesus was giving. In his gospel, Mark often pauses from reporting what happened just to show us how the people were responding. I'm grateful for that. Because we are reading these words out of our context, out of our experience, and then our limited knowledge of the context of that day. And several times, Mark just pauses, and he tells us the reaction of the crowd. He tells us what happened. He did that in our text last week. In fact, so far, here we are in the second chapter of Mark, he's already done it three times. We covered it, one of them last week, but he had two other occasions uh, where he had done that, where he mentioned that the crowd was astonished or amazed. And this is a theme that continues in his gospel. Now, this isn't a scientific count. This is just me reading real quick and making note of what I saw. I've, I found nine other occurrences where this is reported, where, where Mark pauses... And he tells us that the people were amazed, that the people were astonished, that the people were filled with awe. We're not going to go through all of them today, but I do want to read just one of them before we get to our text in Mark 16, 8. There were three ladies that went out on an errand. Uh, they were going to prepare Jesus' body for burial. They didn't have time to do it because of the Sabbath day. He had to be buried. And in Mark chapter 16, verse 8, the women got to the tomb. And you know what they saw? They saw nothing. There was nothing there. You see, people say we make something out of nothing, and they're right. There was nothing in that tomb, and friends, that is something, because that means that Jesus rose from the grave. And here was their response in Mark 16, 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. Trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing. There that word is again. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. 
Well, on Easter Sunday, we'll return to this text, and we'll have a few words to say about nothing that day. But Mark builds this pattern of astonishment all the way to the beginning of our story. You see, the resurrection is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of our story because of what Christ did by taking on our sins on the cross, my sins, your sins. Suffering, bleeding, and dying. They placed him in a borrowed tomb. He wasn't going to need it long enough to own it. And he rose victorious. And our story began. Well, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. But I don't want us to lose sight of our destination. Because we are headed, we are headed to an empty tomb. Well, Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. Please stand with me as we read God's word. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi the son of Alphaeus. Now there's a crowd around him, remember. But in the crowd he saw Levi, a specific person. Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Mm. And he said to him, follow me. He rose and followed him. And he reclined at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, excuse me, I misread that, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was setting with sinners and tax collectors, he said to his, they said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but us. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray together. Father, we are so in need of this good news today. We are grateful, Lord, that we are the recipient of Christ's rescue mission. That he's called us. That he sought us out. He is seeking us out. We're grateful, Lord. And I pray, Lord, today that we will learn from your holy word. 
and that your spirit will work among us to teach us and to help us to learn to live like Jesus lived. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now last week we emphasized that Jesus has God's authority and that he chooses to work through people's faith. That's an important insight. Both are equally important. Jesus has God's authority and he chooses to work through our faith. That absolutely blows my mind that God will use someone like me, someone like you, people like us, a church like us, to speak with his authority and for lives to be changed and transformed. Last week we learned that he does that in the midst of our faith. And that is our response to knowing that about our God, that we are to join him in the work that he is doing, that he is accomplishing in and around us. We often misspeak and we often mispray. We often mispray by saying to God, please bless what we're doing. That misses the whole point. Uh, we are not in the driver's seat. Our prayer should never be, Lord, bless what we're doing, but it is, Lord, show me what you're blessing. Let me be a part of what you're doing. Lord, I am willing, I am ready. And by your spirit I am able. Lord, use me. Or don't use me. That's up to you. I'm yours for your glory. We don't seek God's blessing so we can experience it. We seek God's blessing so that we can bless others. If you're chasing after the blessing of God as a consumer of his blessing, you're missing the point of the gospel. I mean, certainly God saves you on purpose. There is no one that ever comes to Christ that he has not pursued. He saves us on purpose. There's no mistakes. There's no accidents. But he not only saves us on purpose, he saves us for a purpose. And that purpose is so that we can be a blessing for others. And in fact, this principle is embedded all the way back in the Abrahamic covenant. Because when God promised to bless Abraham, he promised to bless him so that he would be a blessing. God's chosen people we're not chosen simply to be recipients of God's grace, but to be conduits of God's grace. And so we know 
that it is God's will in our life today that we find God's will, His blessing, and we position ourselves as humble, obedient servants, ready for Him to use us as He wills to accomplish the purpose that He wills around us. Folks, we gotta we gotta rid we gotta purge ourselves of the wrong-headed concept that God is ready to do our bidding to make us happy or to accomplish our agendas. Now that gospel you can hear preached elsewhere, you're just not gonna hear it here. This is not about me and it's not about you. And frankly, it's not even about us. It's about his mission and the people in the world. And I'm choosing my words carefully. The people in the world that are literally dying without Christ. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. What that lacks in today's political correctness it makes up for in the integrity of what the Scripture teaches. Without Christ, there is no hope. And our goal is not simply to shower ourselves with God's blessings. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be blessed. If you're hearing me say that, that's not my intent to shower us with God's blessing, but it is so that we can be a blessing to others. Hey, there's enough of his grace and mercy for all of us to get wet, right? There's enough to go around. We're talking about a living and an active faith. We're talking about an unroofing the roof faith. We're talking about the friends loving so deeply and believing so strongly that they wouldn't let the crowd stop them from getting their, their paralyzed friend in the presence of Jesus. And there Jesus, who has the authority to forgive sins, forgave his sins because of the people's faith, the friends and the man's faith, forgave his sins and then called him to rise, take up his bed and walk. It was not easy for him to get the authority to forgive sins. Again, you have to go all the way to Good Friday to get there. That, was, that authority was blood-bought. There's a sense in which you have to go historically to the cross, but there's another sense in eternity that Jesus is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This was God's intent all along. It was not an afterthought. It was not a game of chess where God was doing a counter move. You see, he, he determined from the beginning that he was going to be on this rescue mission to gather his to himself. An active faith these four men that we looked at last week are good prototypical faithful men of what it looks like to find what God is blessing and immerse yourself in it and to risk being made look to look like a fool 
because you care that deeply and because you believe that strongly. Truth is, when you care that deeply and you believe that strongly, you don't have time for that stinking thinking that wonders how other people are going to perceive you. Because you're all in and you're doing what is ever is necessary. Well, in today's text, we have another conflict with the scribes. For context, there's 26 different conflicts that Jesus has in the Gospel of Mark. Sixteen of those are with those who do not support his ministry and his teaching. And five of those, five out of the 16, take place in chapter 2 and the opening verses of chapter 3. So, friends, we're knee-deep in conflict right now. And these that are taking place in this portion of Scripture are all controversies that Jesus is having with the religious leaders over the single theme of his authority. Mark, in his opening chapter, in fact, in the opening verses, says that his authority was not like the scribes. His teaching was not like the scribe because he taught with authority. And here, we see him demonstrating that. With one story after another of conflict where Jesus, even against the tide of popular opinion, demonstrates his authority. Now, in this section of Mark, Jesus continues to call his disciples. We didn't mention last week, but he's already called four fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John in chapter 1. And now he calls one more a, a disciple. Now, Mark doesn't tell all the stories of everyone that's called. Later, he just gives us a listing of all of them. So when he does tell us a story, we need to figure out why. What's he doing with this? And this one is actually fairly simple. It's, it's, it's obvious because of who Levi was and the story that is the setting for our controversy that we're examining today, was that Jesus was reclining at the table with sinners. Now, there's a sense in which all of us are sinners. I've already spoken of that today. In fact, we speak of that almost every week. We never want to forget that even the redeemed are sinful people. We are saints and sinners. Both of those things keep us centered in need of the grace of God and relying upon it. However, in their time, they viewed some classes of people and would just refer to these classes of people as sinful or as sinners. And one of the worst would be tax collectors. Levi, who is also known as Matthew, if that helps with your understanding of who wrote the New Testament. Of course, we understand that God wrote the New Testament, but he used humans to do it. And the first of the gospel that's listed in the order in our Bible, though not the first to be written, was Matthew. 
So that's who we're referring to. That's who Jesus called. A tax collector who later becomes one of the evangelists that write out our gospels that introduce us to who Jesus is and give us greater understanding about his work. He was an eyewitness. He was there. Now, the scribes did not get upset when he called the fishermen. Probably didn't care. But now they do. It would have upset them whenever that uh, Jesus called this sinful person, this Levi, who was a tax collector, uh, to, uh, to follow him. Now Mark gives us some help in interpreting this because now we find out that these weren't just everyday scribes. In fact, I glossed as I read today and did not read it carefully and had to go back and reread because it's just so easy to do, to think of scribes and Pharisees. These folks were both. They were scribes and Pharisees. They were scribes of the Pharisees. Now, uh, there were scribes that were not Pharisees, and there were Pharisees that were not scribes, but these were both. And a little insight into who they are and what they valued. The scribes who spent their working hours copying from one scroll to another so that it would be available to more people. Remember, this was before Gutenberg, before the printing press, before you could fax things, before you could scan things, all of that. So they had to hand write it. And I don't know about you, but whenever you hand write things, don't you remember it more than any other way? There's just something about holding that utensil and letting it move, read, write, see if you got it right, read, write, and going back and forth. And so because of that, they were known to be experts in the law. Because they were reading and writing it all day long. And so people, especially people who didn't have a scroll, if they wanted to know what the law taught, they would just go ask a scribe. That was their form of Googling it, I guess. They would just go scribe it. And they would get their answer. Pharisees, on the other hand, were serious adherents of the law. However, their, uh, their approach wasn't just to keep the letter of the law but it was to build a hedge of protection around the law using oral tradition and precedences. And so they had a large number, over 600, uh, different uh, rules, so to speak, to make sure people kept the Ten Commandments so that they could define what was appropriate, what was inappropriate, what you could do on the Sabbath day, what you could do on any other day, and by the way, the Sabbath day is coming, and by that I don't mean Saturday is coming. We, we know that, but we know that many of the controversies that are coming are going to happen on the Sabbath because of their high value for this. 
And so a scribe who was a Pharisee would not only care about what the written law says, but they would care about the collection of how the community thought the law should be applied. And so this is a bigger list. And the way they did it, they didn't depend upon the Spirit of God to help someone interpret the law in the moment. And so they found themselves, because they were very concerned with these things, keeping score. Unfortunately, not so much about their keeping of the law, but everyone else's. Now, with that background, let's return to the observation about this particular text. They would have been upset that Jesus would call a tax collector, not just because, well, most people don't want, I mean, does anyone have an IRS agent on your Christmas list, your Christmas card list? You know, I mean, there's just, just the general sense of we pay too much taxes, right? I mean, there's a few people that complain they don't pay enough, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know how to comment on that. <laughs> In this particular case, it wasn't just that they were collecting taxes, but it was they were not able to be strict adherents of the law because of their dealings with the Gentiles. And so they would be, uh, well, they were Jews by race, but not by practice. They weren't adherents of the law. And now let's get back to the general distaste. This was not, this was not collecting taxes for the common good. These were... Uh, uh, they were in, in uh, Rome, under Roman occupation, right? And so the Romans would hire these Jewish people uh, to be able to collect the poll and property taxes, which would be very similar to paying customs, custom duties or tariffs today. But here's the catch. They told them how much they had to collect, but didn't pay them. Their payment came from the extra that they deceived or tricked or manipulated the people to pay. And so just the general thoughts among those who would have been reading this text in the first century was, why in the world would he want one of them to be one of us? The scribes who were Pharisees would be especially upset because, hey, they weren't, they weren't checking every box. The people would be generally upset because there was a, these guys were turncoats and traitors against their own people. And in fact, the very money they collected helped fund the occupation that was oppressing them. So why in the world would we want one of them 
to be part of us. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad that Jesus in his rescue mission goes after one of them. Because that means he might just go after one of us. Here's the tricky thing about grace. When when we're receiving it, it makes perfect sense. When we're witnessing it, it makes us scratch our head. (laughs) And when we're asked to extend it, we say, are you kidding me? (laughs) Funny thing about grace. See, whenever we get in a text like this, you immediately start associating with somebody. And it's usually the wrong person. Because the truth is, there are times I am the Pharisee. Anybody else in the room? This was a 12-step meeting. I'd say, hi, my name is Jim. I'm a recovering Pharisee. (laughs) Anybody else? Hey, we all have something we're dealing with, right? We all have something. Do you associate yourself with Levi as the person who is a social outcast? Now, Where I hope we are at the end of this message is we understand that we're on the rescue mission with Jesus. Willing to go after the Levi's of the world. Okay, well this is all still just the background of what's taking place here. Because the story that Mark brings us, this is bubbling up in the background, but then we get to our story. The story is that Jesus sets down, actually he reclines at the table. Uh, You know, sometimes we eat our breakfast bar in the car as we're driving to work on the commute. You know, this wasn't that. This isn't, hey, I got to get enough nutrition or frankly enough caffeine uh, to get me there. He reclined at the table. He was spending time with Levi and his kind. Likely these were his friends. Likely he wasn't the only tax collector in the room. And Jesus not only said, I want you to be one of us in this mission to change the world and redeem mankind, but sure, I'll come to your house. I'll linger. I'll spend time with you. This wasn't a quick bite. This wasn't a drive through. He was spending time with them. This inflamed the situation. Who is this guy? Last week, they were upset that he was forgiving sinners. Now they're upset 
that he's associating with sinners. Who is this guy? Why is he living life and spending time with them? Now, in the first controversy, they didn't say a word. Jesus perceived what was in their heart. By the way, in many of these controversies, Jesus is the antagonist. He's the one that's poking the bear. That happened last week. They didn't say a word, but Jesus spoke what they were perceiving in their heart. Now, that's a comforting thought. That's also a disturbing thought. He knows what's in our heart. He knows. He confronted them. Now, in this episode, they at least speak, but they didn't speak directly to Jesus. Instead, they talked to Jesus' disciples and said, why are you doing this? And of course, Jesus answers them head on. Why would this teacher who had amazed them and everyone else be associating himself with despised and sinful people? Okay, for a minute, can we set aside their bias against the ethnic Jew who collected tariffs when people crossed over into Roman territory? But can we set that aside for just a moment? And let's think like a scribe for a minute. They had a point. They had a point. Proverbs 13, 20 says, Whoever walks with the wise become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. They had a point. Psalm 1, 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor eats in the seat of scoffers. Of course, Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. So the wisdom literature of their day was saying, hey, this isn't wise. This isn't a good idea. Be careful who you hang out with. When you were a teenager, didn't your parents say something about that? Be careful who you hang out with. As you've parented teenagers, haven't you said something like that? You were right, weren't you? In fact, Paul would later write, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. We do have to be careful about who we associate with. In fact, I heard the other day someone say, as a rule of thumb, you are the composite of your five closest friends. You become like the people you spend time with. I guess that's a current version of wisdom. So wisdom dictates that good people should not let evil people influence them. It's not wise for us to develop intimate relationships with people that we do not admire. Okay, so what are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that? Well, Mark doesn't mention any reply from the disciples. 
But he does mention what Jesus said. I think it would be a good idea for us to look at that right now. Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus framed this relationship he had by his mission. And his mission was to call sinners. His mission was to redeem sinners. His mission was to transform sinners back into his likeness. In creation, we were created in the image of God, but then the fall marred us, and because of sin, we no longer reflect God's glory. In fact, Paul made it clear that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Jesus' rescue mission is a mission of restoration, where he's restoring the glory of God so that his image is reflected, not just in the way that we look, but the things that we say and the way that we live. That's why it's so inadequate just to say, what would Jesus do? Because we must live like Jesus lived. And that is only possible as God restores us. Friends, I want you to know that regardless of what you've done, regardless of the labels that everyone has fixed on you, there's hope. There's hope. Because of Christ's rescue mission, there's hope. See, he walks by a crowd and he sees Levi. He said to him, follow me. Levi says, will you come to my house? He says, yes. Will you meet my friends? Yes. Will you linger? Yes. And Jesus explains why. The sick need a doctor. And he's going to go and be with those in need. You see, his relationship is not peer to peer. It's not, hey, let's hang out and influence each other. He's on a rescue mission. He's not saying, let's share life. He's saying, I want to transform your life. He's not saying you're sinful and that's okay. He's saying you're sinful, it's time to repent. He's not tolerating the overt or the covert sins. You see, whether you're on the side of sin that you feel that you are a person of reproach or you're the side of sin where you're reproaching other people, both camps are sinful people in desperate need of the grace of God. See, Jesus is on a rescue mission. 
Just as doctors have to be around sick people, Jesus had to be around sinners. You know, the old adage warns us not to play with fire, we're going to get burned. But there's also the undeniable truth that firemen race to the fires to save lives. Just this last year, our family is recipient of brave men and women that raced to the fire as a wildfire got, I don't know, about a mile and a half from our home. I'm grateful for those that will do that. Common sense says when you see fire run, not towards it. I'm grateful for courageous men and women that have no common sense. <laughs> Who will say there are some things that are worth the risk. Church, that's the metaphor we need to see right here, right now. This is positioning who we are because if we're going to go where Jesus is, we're going to be running to the fire. We're going to be going to places where people are sinful. And when we get there, our purpose is to work with Jesus in restoring them to the full brilliance and glory of God. So that when other people view them, they see a soul for whom Christ has died and has redeemed and restored his image upon them. So our mission is his mission. We must be faithful and on mission. And we join Jesus in his rescue mission. We have to be careful not to avoid people because of who they are. Instead, we meet them at the point of their need so they can become who God intends them to be. Now the scribes who were Pharisees could not see the opportunity for ministry that was right in front of them because of the offensive nature of the people's sin. They had a privileged standing in the community. So they marginalized people who made bad decisions. They shunned them, leaving them to dine at the table alone in their sin. Jesus looked at them Jesus looked at Levi and could still see the image of God in him. He said, he's worth my time. And he entered into a redemptive relationship with him. Now here's what I want to ask you. Are you willing to be rescued? And are you willing to rescue others? Now, we can't wait for you to get it all together. 
to join us on this rescue mission. Because I tell you what's going to happen. The minute you start getting it all together, you're going to look at yourself and you'll be a scribe who is a Pharisee. And you will have fallen off on the ditch, in the ditch on the other side of the road. You'll become the person who resents God being gracious to other people. So here's what I want to ask you. Will you join Jesus in his rescue mission while you're being rescued? Because this side of glory, there's never a time I'm not going to need his grace. Are you with me? There's never a time I'm not going to need his grace. There's never a time I'm not going to be rescued. There won't be a time that I won't need to be corrected. There won't be a time that I won't, be rem that I won't need to be reminded of my own sinfulness. But I want to expose a lie from the pit of hell. You're not good enough. Well, you're right. None of us are good enough, but Jesus is. And while we're becoming what he's called us to become, we must be on mission with him as we spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Matthew started following him right away. And the first thing that Matthew did when he started following Jesus was wanted Jesus to meet his friends. Or wanted his friends to meet Jesus. I think that's a pretty good pattern for us to follow too. Don't you?